Across Can, there are numerous creation myths to be explored. The Menites believe that Menoth created the sun and Can. He did this as an extension of his will and power to bring lasting order. While the Dunians believe that Can and Dunia are one and the same, they believe that she created Menoth to protect her from the Devourer Worm. Blackclads of the Circle Orboros believe that Menoth, Dunia, and the Devourer are all different faces of the same god, which they call Orboros. Elven gods of the Divine Court in their Palace of Laios, Gore, the mountain giving birth to the great fathers of the Rulic people, Cirrus, constantly searching out technological perfection and precision, and more recently, Thamar and Moro, human twins that ascended into godhood. Some gods are new to the pantheon of Cain, or have only recently been discovered. The gods are shrouded in mystery, but only one thing that is known for sure. The gods exist and are fighting for the souls of all living things on Cain. In the beginning, there was chaos and perpetual darkness, and out of that darkness a god was created. His name was Menoth. After his creation, he extended his will and created a planet called Cain, and the sun bringing light to the chaos. He began to walk the surface of the planet he created. In his shadow, mankind arose, a race created in his image. Menoth looked up into the night sky. He witnessed a shapeless monstrosity appearing from the dark. This strange worm came down and began devouring that which Menoth had created. Menoth stepped forth and began to fight the devourer worm. This began a ceaseless battle that continues on to this day. As the gods fought, the collateral damage began to shape the surface of Cain, where one through the other, craters would form and fill with water, creating lakes. The shockwaves would rupture the land, causing earthquakes from which mountains rose. As the battle waged on, the devourer worm retreated into Urcan, a shadowy mirror of Cain where all souls go after passing. Menoth followed his adversary into Urcan, where he discovered a peculiar thing. He became aware of the souls passing from Cain into this spiritual realm. Menoth witnessed the souls of those who had remained faithful gather around him. Those who had forgotten their creator were drawn into the wilds to join the devourer worm. These souls helped their chosen god do battle in Urcan. Menoth realized that much of those that he had created had forgotten him. He turned his attention back to Cain, and with it, his wrath. The tribes witnessed his terrifying manifestation. Many immediately returned to worshipping their creator, and those who did not went deeper into the wilds. Menoth promised protection in the afterlife for those who worshipped him. He then created the City of Man, a place where all of his faithful may be guided to in Urcan. And thus began the War of Souls. Mankind on Cain continued to grow. Tribes became communities, and these communities would prosper and grow. The largest tribe of Menoth's faithful took a pilgrimage west. They faced many hardships along the way, but their faith guided them until they reached the shores of the Meridius Sea. It was here that they established Ichthyr, the first great city of man. In Ichthyr, Menoth gave mankind three gifts. The flame, a light to wield against the darkness, warmth to survive harsh winters, and heat to forge strong weapons and armor to protect the faithful. The flame also represents the faith of all Menites and the legacy of the temple. The second gift that he imparted onto mankind was the sheaf. With this gift, mankind began to flourish. Tribes began to till the earth, sow seeds, and harvest grain. 
This allowed the population to grow to new heights. He also showed mankind the value of cattle and other animals to help with intensive labor. This gave rise to the training and riding of horses and allowed faithful Menites to prosper over rival tribes. The law was the last and greatest gift that Menoth gave to his followers. This separated the faithful into the priest or scrutator caste. The law dictated that righteous rulers would be legitimized and sanctified by the priest caste. The law propelled the faithful and helped them rise above the tribes that worshipped the worm, known as the Mulgore. As civilization spread, the Mulgore were forced deeper into the wilds. These tribes of faithless humans, Trollkin, Gobbers, and Ogren, committed acts that were seen as vile to those who worshipped Menoth. Using bloody sacrifices, shamans could invoke their own kind of miracles. Self-mutilation and cannibalism ran rampant throughout the Mulgore tribes. The Mulgore, being nomadic tribes, saw the stationary settlements of the Menites as easy raiding targets. Villages on the outskirts of civilization faced constant threat from these savages. But as time went on, the Menite people learned to craft better weapons and armor. They did not have the numbers or strength of the Mulgore, but their advanced weapons gave them the edge they needed to protect the people and push back against the raiders. The Mulgore were dealt a decisive blow when the leader of the Mulgore was captured and executed. Horfar Grimar was a Trollkin champion that had risen through the ranks of the tribes and unified the many tribes of the Mulgore. With the death of Horfar Grimar, the tribes fell into disarray, some going north into the mountains, others heading towards the Shard Isles, and many fleeing into the wilds. Some of these tribes continued to worship the worm, such as the Tharn, but many of the humans returned their worship to the Creator. The Dunian races of the Mulgore did not have the choice and could not join the Menites. Thus began the rise of Dunian worship, the divine mother of Trollkin, Ogren, and Gobbers. The Dunian races believe a different tale to the creation of the world. They believe that Can and Dunia are one entity, that she gave birth to plants, nurturing rains, and species that fed upon leaf and branch. Dunia also created the cycle of life and rebirth, replacing those who have fallen from violence, age, or disease. In their tales, the worm gave rise to storms, earthquakes, and other natural disasters. He also created predatory and violent creatures that survived by hunting other creatures. The Dunian races rose from the ravaging of Dunia by the devourer worm. They believe it is why they carry traits from both of the gods. A savage and brutal strength is given to them by the worm, and their nobility and honor was imparted on them by their mother. They believe it was also this ravaging that gave rise to Menoth. Dunia needed a reprieve from the worm, and so she created Menoth, a great hunter, to battle the worm. Just as in the tale of the Menites, the gods fought and shaped the lands, and they took their conflict into Urkaean. But it is not just the original gods that inhabit Urkaean. In the area of Urkaean called Kardrogon, one mountain stood tallest amongst them all. Its name was Gore. This mountain god was alone and sought to find those who could marvel at his immensity. And so he searched within himself and pulled forth thirteen crystals of his essence. Gore carved them into shapes that pleased him, then gave life to the crystals. The god then enslaved the crystals, threatening to grind them to dust if they did not obey. Gore demanded that his slaves should build a monument to honor him. Without the knowledge of how to shape stone and metal, the slaves would not be able to make the monument to properly represent the mountain god. 
So Gore then bequeathed all that he knew of stone and metal to his crystal slaves. Little did he know that the crystals were not content in their bondage and that they dreamed of freedom. The mountain god watched as the crystals began building his monument. Each of the crystals discovered a love for working stone and metal and found that they sought perfection in their work. Years passed and the 13 slaves finished their work. They presented it to the mountain god. Gore was displeased. Their best work was not good enough for Gore and he unleashed a massive earthquake. As the earth split, the monument was swallowed by the earth. The god then instructed his slaves to start again. The 13 started working on the next monument. They worked for decades to create the perfect monument to the tyrant Gore. But with despair, they watched as the mountain god destroyed their work once again. The 13 could not stand to see their work destroyed for a third time. In secret, they devised a plan. They informed Gore that they wanted to build a tower. This tower would be so high that it would touch the sky, high above Kardrogan. Gore was delighted. They told him that to make such a magnificent structure, they would need material from the god himself. Gore agreed to the plan, and the slaves began their work mining the body of the mountain god. The slaves needed to distract the god. The crystal named Lodhul began hosting great gatherings of supplicants as his brothers mined deep and labyrinthian tunnels through the body of the god. As the tower grew, Gore's body was slowly sapped of power. The god watched in amazement, bewitched by the amazing craftsmanship of the slaves. Years passed and the tower grew taller and more marvelous each day. Covertly, the slaves gleaned more secrets from the mountain god, until one day their monument was completed. Gore stared at his truly magnificent monument. It was then that the slaves began the final step of their plan. They destroyed the pillars supporting the hollowed-out mountain. Amidst a massive cloud of dust, Gore the mountain god collapsed into himself. What was once the greatest mountain standing high above the rest became gently rolling hills. These hills now surround the monument. The slaves called this monument Tower Gorefell. The horrors from the wilds around Karg Drogon witnessed the fall of the great mountain and moved in to try and claim the land. The freed crystals fought off the monsters with newly crafted weapons and armor, and ultimately claimed the land as their own. They began to mine the ground under what was once the mountain god, and inside these mines they found a chasm that seemed endless. Curiosity overcame the crystals, and they ventured into the chasm. It was then that the crystals came to Cain. Upon walking the new-found lands, the crystals inspired by Gore created the Claywives. From the Claywives, the rule folk were born. The crystals then became known as the Great Fathers. Orm, the patron of masonry and building, who devised the plan for Tower Gorefell. Godor, the patron of orators, who convinced Gore to contribute to their tower. Lodil, the patron of feasts, who hosted the feasts that distracted Gore while Dol, the patron of mining, mined the tunnels into Gore. Yord and Odom, patrons of espionage and secrets, who learned all that the mountain god had to offer. And lastly, there is Durg, Dovor, Gord, Horord, Sigmor, Udo, and Uldor. The Great Fathers taught the Ruluk people all they had learned whilst enslaved by the mountain god. The Great Fathers also passed on edicts that would later become the Codex which the Ruluk people follow. The edicts were as follows. The Edict of Authority, 
which outlines the family hierarchy around the clan, the Edict of Building, which established the importance of crafting and construction, the Edict of Duels, describing the right to resolve disputes through physical confrontation, the Edict of Feuds, with laws for larger conflicts between entire clans, the Edict of Oaths, which defined the importance of sworn promises, the Edict of Ownership, giving each dwarf the right to own that which he has created, traded for, been freely given, or won by lawful duel or feud. And lastly, the Edict of Unity, binding the dwarves to unite against external threats. The Great Fathers had left Tower Gorfell unprotected, and knew that they must defend their monument against the horrors of Urkan. After teaching the rule folk all they knew, the Claywives and Great Fathers returned to Car Drogon, never to set foot in Caen again. But not all tales of creation end so triumphantly. In an area of Urkaean called the Veld, there is a palace called Laios. It is here that the elven gods reside. The eight gods are associated with the cycles of the passage of time. Lakir, the Narcosar of Ages, rules over them with her consort, Osiris the Inisar of Ages, Sovereign of Conflict and General of Laios, Aisla, Nisarsar of Night and her counterpart, Nero, is the Arisar of Day, Seneschal and Lorekeeper. Together, they are the Watchers of the Gates of Laios. Then there are the Four Gods of the Seasons, Lilis, Nisire of Autumn, Court Assassin and Mistress of Poisons, Nisor, Sire of Winter and Grand Crafter, Syra, Nisisir of Spring, Healer of the Divine Court, and lastly, Lernisar, Isir of Summer, Armsmaster of Laios, and Chief of Scouts, and together they are the Divine Court. Lernisar and his scouts witness souls pouring into the wilds from outside of Laios. Upon their return, they informed Lakir of his strange phenomenon. Lakir was intrigued by this and decided to follow the River of Souls. This was how she stepped foot for the first time on Tarkan. It was here that she witnessed the brutality and savagery of the mortal races. But that wasn't the only thing she discovered. The trials and tribulations faced by these mortals seemed to empower their spiritual essence. When they passed into Urkaean, the spiritual essence would empower the god that the mortal worshipped. Lakir returned to Laios with this knowledge and proposed an idea to the rest of the Divine Court they would create a race of mortals bound to their worship. So it was that Lakir gave birth to the elven race. The gods of the divine court linked the lives of the elves to the cycle of the seasons and the passage of night and day. The elves inhabited eastern Imran and quickly spread across the land. When Lakir deemed them worthy, she made herself known to them and provided them with the wisdom of the divine court. But as time went on, the divide between Caen and the Veld began to thicken. Communication between the gods and their creation began to fade. It became nearly impossible for the elven priests on Imran to summon forth miracles. The divine court sent a message to their great fanes. They wished to once again walk Caen, and to do so, they must construct a bridge between the worlds of mortal and spiritual. The elves set out to begin construction of the Bridge of Worlds in 4250 BR. The gods sent messages imparting the elves with knowledge of the arcane. They taught the elves how to use force of will to lift massive pieces of stone and metal. The elves of Caen did not need to understand what they were doing in its entirety. 
but only to follow the instructions sent by the gods. Generations of elves worked on this magnificent project, tapping into the arcane energies of Caen. After 250 years, the elven people gathered around the Bridge of Worlds. The most impressive structure ever made by mortal hands was completed. A festival was held in the elven capital of Nysheel, streets overflowing with elves. Many traveled vast distances to witness the gods return to Caen. That was when tragedy struck. At first, when the Bridge of Worlds hummed to life, the people cheered as all seemed to be in working order. But as the gods entered into Caen, the Bridge of Worlds exploded in a flash of power. Blue fire spread, scorching the lands. Trees and stone alike were incinerated. Nyshield destroyed in the blink of an eye. The explosion cracked Caen itself. It turned the fertile lands into ruin, forming an abyss that spewed molten earth. The small desert to the south became the vast waste now called the Bloodstone Marches. The cataclysm caused strange weather patterns to form across the continent. Areas such as the Stormlands, a region of unrelenting lightning and rain. The gods of the Divine Court miraculously survived the explosion. They used their combined powers to protect many thousands of elves, but they could not reach out to those across vast distances. Elves in far-out communities fell and were beset by predators without the protection of their gods. The realm of the elves was almost entirely wiped out. The surviving elves and the Divine Court set out west, where they took residence in the Vale that they now call Ios. The elves and the Divine Court settled into their new land, building new fanes to house the gods. For thousands of years, the people prospered. But by 840 BR, the gods noticed a strange decline in the health of their people. Disease was on the rise, fertility rates were declining, the elven people were dying off. The gods believed it was due to their presence on Caen creating an imbalance in the cosmos. It was then that the Divine Court left the lands of mortals and returned to Urcaean for the good of their people. Many of the outlying cities dedicated to certain gods fell into ruin after the exodus. The gods continued to communicate with their followers until many centuries later when tragedy struck the elven people a second time. In 140 BR, the Rivening occurred. The priests lost connection to the gods of the Divine Court. As the spiritual connection was severed, the priests were driven mad. They were overcome by strange visions, pushing them to commit horrifying acts. Many killed themselves, committed murder, and others tore out their eyes and ran into the streets, howling in madness. Only the priests of Syra were left intact. Although they suffered from mild cases of dementia, but were still able to manifest minor miracles. In 34 BR, Syra returned to Caen alone. She went to the Fane and Sheer and fell into a deep slumber. This led many to believe that something had happened to the gods during their time in Urcaean. But their fate is still unknown while the goddess sleeps. In recent years, the cult of Cirrus has seen an uprising. Constantly seeking out perfection and finding enlightenment in mathematics and engineering, all in the name of the Maiden of Gears. The cult of Cirrus is very secretive, and even within its congregation, theories about Cirrus are not discussed. The cult believes it is vital to separate theory from fact, and facts about the goddess are few. In 283 AR, Adolphus Agamor, an engineer specializing in optics, found a previously undiscovered celestial object. He called this planet the Dark Wanderer. 
After his discovery, he began to have inexplicable dreams and visions. It was through these that he became convinced that the planet was named Cirrus, a name shared by a divine being communicating to him through his dreams. Over the years, as more began to witness the Dark Wanderer, more began to have the same visions. Agamor and others who heard the whispers of Cirrus began to meet, and from these meetings arose the cult of Cirrus. It is believed that the consciousness of Cirrus resides in the planet, and that all things are connected to her conscious will, even the laws of reality itself. Those that are closest to perfection are closest to the goddess, and those that are imperfect are far from her. They believe that the only thing that can be perfected is the soul, and even this must be refined over time. The cult has hidden workshops all over Imarin, constantly seeking out perfection to bring themselves closer to their goddess. Not all gods of the Pantheon of Caen are from ancient times. On Caen, the occurrence of twins sometimes tells of great things. In 1930 BR, Thamar and Moro were born. At this time, the Menite faith was completely dominant in human civilization. The faith ruled over all aspects of life. Moro respected the Creator and the gifts that he had given to mankind, but he questioned how the true law was to be interpreted. His sister Thamar was much more extreme in her hatred for the priesthood, and historians have theorized that their parents may have been executed by scrutators of the Menite faith. Moro grew up in the city of Caspia, eventually joining the Caspian army. During his time there, he wrote much about finding honor in the darkest of times. Upon his return, he took his writings to the streets and spoke publicly of his thoughts, many of them contradictory to what the priest caste had preached. He spoke with the sick, injured, and starving, lending aid to those who truly needed it. And in return, they listened to his words, many even saying that he could work miracles. As Moro's following grew, he began to take pilgrimages to far out lands. More and more listened to what he had to say and began taking a stand against the yoke of the Menite faith. Moro's teachings emphasized the greater good and the search for enlightenment therein. He believed that living a good life meant more than just following the true law. It required compassion, self-sacrifice, benevolence, and mercy. Moro believed that with a deep understanding of the world and its values, one could transcend the mortal flesh and unlock the boundless potential of the immortal soul. He believed this power could be utilized to the betterment of all. Although the twins shared a lot of the same beliefs and dislike of the Menite faith, Thamar took a much more radical path. She believed that unlocking true human potential did not come from mercy, self-sacrifice, or the greater good. Thamar believed that power of the immortal soul required freedom, total physical, mental, and spiritual freedom. Thamar believed mankind would find betterment in the individual, that mankind needed to find the strength within themselves to rise above others. Thamar hungered for knowledge, and so she learned every tongue spoken. She searched out old tomes, scrolls, and immersed herself in the occult, seeking mastery of the supernatural. This included unholy and forbidden lore. With her brother's teachings taking root in most of civilization, Radical thinkers and outcasts took to Thamar's teachings. The twins may have had different methods, but both wanted to achieve the same goal, to show the masses that the Menite faith and way of life was not the only way. When the Scrutators heard of the newfound following of the twins, they began a campaign against them, 
they captured, tortured, and executed the heathens. The Scrutators would rack or burn alive any followers of Thamar and Moro they could find. When the twins heard about the executions, they put aside their differences and put out a call to all who had suffered under Menite rule. Thousands heard the call, and in 1900 BR, they marched on the city of Caspia. The priest king Halidius marched out to meet Thamar, Moro, and their followers. Halidius believed that they could not be defeated, for Menoth stood with them. Amid the clash of steel, Moro fought the priest king. A heated battle ensued, and in the end, Moro disarmed Halidius and demanded his surrender. Moro watched and waited. Before the priest king could respond, Thamar impaled the unarmed priest. Moro watched in horror as the life bled out of the priest king. Moro swore that his sister would pay for this act after the battle had concluded. This was the beginning of a new divide between the twins. Thamar and Moro's combined armies swept aside the rest of the Menite forces and returned to Caspia. The crowds cheered their names and they were welcomed as heroes. The people of Caspia spoke and asked for Moro to rule over them. Moro reluctantly accepted the position of ruler. Ruling was not an easy task for Moro, as he learned that many decisions did not have an easy solution. Moro himself later admitted that many mistakes were made in the early years of his ruling. One of the many difficult decisions Moro was faced with was reconciling with those in the city who still wished to worship the Creator. Moro had no desire to exile them from the city or deprive them of their worship. The ruler reached an accord. He would protect the temples dedicated to Menoth, and he would hold his sister Thamar responsible for the murder of priest King Heledius. Moro called forth Thamar and informed her of what had been agreed. Thamar begged for forgiveness, but Moro believed her humility and guilt to be insincere. Moro exiled his sister from the city of Caspia and promised death should she ever return. Thamar was forced out of the city that she had fought to free. Her hatred for all those who sat in authority grew deeper. Moro sought to rid the city of all evil and ordered Thamar's followers imprisoned. The ruler restricted the freedoms of those living in Caspia as he sought to eliminate all crime and corruption, a task that proved insurmountable. Although freedoms were reduced, many of Caspian citizens' lives were greatly improved. As Moro fought corruption within the city, Thamar spent the next several years studying the occult. She met with shamans of the worm and sages of the Black Kingdom of Mord. Thamar went as far as to create her own language and alphabet called Telgesh. In secret, Thamar fought her own war against the priests of Menoth and worked with those embittered by Moro's rule of Caspia. She sowed seeds of discontent in the underworld and sought to undermine her brother's rule however she could. In 1894 BR, Thamar returned to the city of Caspia. As she entered the city, an army arose from the seedy underground of Caspia. That day, many of those who governed the city were slain in their homes. Thamar carved a path of destruction through the city. Fierce winds set aflame by dark fire led the way, and those still living were slain by her spear. Buildings around her collapsed and fell into ruin as she walked past. The dead rose and began to assault the living in her wake. Moro knew that the only way to stop Thamar was to confront her personally. Moro found Thamar at the outer gate of what would later be called the Sanctum. It was here that the duel occurred. 
Thamar taunted her brother, telling him that he had become what they despised. She pointed out just how weak the city had become under his rule, unable to defend themselves from the world beyond Caspia's walls. It was then that Thamar unleashed a sorcery that caused the sky to blacken, and summoned a storm of smoke and fire that threatened the entirety of the city. Moro saw then what had led to this moment. His unwillingness to forgive his sister had pushed her down an even darker path. It was then that he realized what he must do. He knew that the only way to save Caspia was to sacrifice himself. Moro stepped forward and accepted the full force of her wrath. As he fell, those gathered around witnessed his flesh become spirit and watched as he ascended into the sky as the unnatural storm was dispersed by the light. The risen dead fell to dust and the storm of smoke and fire dissolved. The masses became empowered by Moro's selfless act and no longer feared Thamar. They overwhelmed her and viciously tore her apart, and in death, Thamar too ascended, but as a black cloud of smoke into the sky. One of Moro's disciples, a man named Laertes Prado, collected all of Thamar's writings. He was intent on destroying them, expunging her teachings from Caspia. It was then that an apparition of Moro appeared before him. He insisted that Thamar's writings be preserved, alongside his own, to illustrate the volition encompassing both of their choices. The combined writings of Thamar and Moro eventually became the Onchiridon, the basis of Moroan beliefs. Thamar and Moro are the newest gods to join the Pantheon, and have joined the War of Souls raging in Urcaean. As the mortals of Caen battle each other over dominance of the land, the gods fight over the fate of Caen itself. Some believe that if the War of Souls were to end, it would usher in the Apocalypse. <laughs>